0: Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We were really fortunate recently to hear from Assistant Commissioner for the SMSF sector at the ATO Dana Fleming about what the ATO sees as the critical things people need to think about when establishing and running a self-managed super fund with so many funds to regulate, uh, 600 and something thousand now, and so many issues to consider, the ATO actually takes a fairly targeted approach to the sector. Dana has kindly agreed to discuss how the ATO approaches this sector, self-managed super funds, what they're doing, what they're looking for when it comes to SMSF. So if you're a trustee or thinking about becoming one, or if you are a professional, because we get a few professionals listening to the podcast as well, it's really valuable to have an understanding of what the regulator's looking for. Donna, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Gemma. It's great to be back again. So tell me a little bit about your program of work. you have a plan for how you go out and look at the
1: sector? Absolutely, we do. Uh, So as you said, there's 600,000 SMSFs and we um, do need to, as well as support them through education and awareness, we have a role to play in ensuring we protect the integrity of the sector. So each year we do convene and we look at our data and we try and work out what we want to focus on as our key risk areas for our program of work so it can't by its very nature cover everything so we're trying to focus on what we think are the highest risk areas so this year uh, we touched on some of these in our last chat Um, illegal early release and promoters um, stays are pretty much our number one concern Uh, not lodging your tax return. Now that doesn't sound very exciting, but it actually is quite a big concern for us and we can talk on that why later. We've also got a program on our top 100 SMSFs, our biggest SMSFs in the sector. We have a specific program of work around the SMSF auditors. I'm not sure if uh, most of your listeners would be aware, but we co regulate the sector with ASEC for the SMSF auditor population. There's about 5,000, 6,000 of them. The ASEC is responsible for setting exams and registering them. Their also responsibility is to impose sanctions on them and um, deregister them if they think that's necessary, but we do the monitoring piece in between to make sure that they are um, complying and adhering to their auditing professional standards and giving SMSFs a quality and competent audit, which they have to get every year. Uh, and the last one is a uh, regulatory contravention program. So what does that mean? As everyone probably knows who has an SMSF, you have to get an annual audit every year one of the key responsibilities of the auditors is to check compliance with the CIS Act, the Superannuation Industry Supervisory Act, and uh, there are a number of contraventions that they have to report to us on if they see there's been a breach, and then we need to follow up that report that um, has been made to us. So there are key programs of work for uh, this financial year. So it sounds like a long list, and for
0: most people, they're like, "Ah, eh, don't know what that is, don't know if it's going to be relevant to me. But we might talk through each of them to understand, because particularly the breach reporting, I think that's going to be really interesting. Uh, there are so many areas that you see in the sector and what is going on with each of them. Now, early release, I would hope, is a, a very minor issue, but it's obviously minor as in scale but terribly important in terms of significance.
1: So tell us a bit more about what you see there. Yeah, so why we uh, consider a legal early release such a serious issue for us is twofold. One is generally it means that uh, individuals have taken their superannuation out and spent it, so it's not available for them in retirement, and that's obviously a grave concern for them personally but also for the system. And the reason I say that is, of course, if you have taken your super out and then it's not available to assist you uh, in retirement, uh, that undermines the whole pillars of our retirement system. And that is that there are generous concessions offered to superannuation as an incentive to not have your money until you retire. Uh, because the government sees that as the way that they can encourage people to save for their own retirement and reduce the burden on government of the age pension. So, you know, it's a social compact that um, we enter into when you voluntarily undertake to become an SMSF trustee. So that's why it is such a serious issue. Uh, the way we um, most um, spend most of our effort trying to manage this issue is at the front door, okay? When people set up their SMSF. Uh, and what is our front door process, or we call it our secure front door. It's uh, essentially when any new fund comes to us to set up their SMSF and register with us, we run them through our analytical models um, to see if we think they are potentially at risk of illegal early release, taking out their super early before they've reached retirement or age 60. So what are the kind of things? We're very transparent about what our risk model um, looks at, and they're probably the pretty obvious things that you would expect. So we look at the compliance history of the individual. Have they been um, keeping their own personal tax returns up to date? Do they have outstanding debts with the ATO? Uh, has the fund actually been set up properly? So we, we can see if they have got a lot of errors with the way they've put the members' names down or the date they've missed a the date of birth. So that's an indicator to us that the person's not really on top of what they're needing to do here. So is their financial infrastructure looking good? Uh, and the other thing we look at is the compliance history of. Um, their associates. So if they are being assisted by a tax agent or who has assisted them to help set up, if that agent is part of um, what we call our agents of concern program, that's a high risk flag for us. And uh, last but not least, because illegal early release um, is sometimes not done by the individual, it can be identity fraud. So we do actually check for, um, has that individual's tax file number been compromised or other um, aspects of their data been compromised? And if that's the case, then that's a risk flag for us as well. So they're the kind of fundamental things that we look at. And if they um, are low risk through our model, then they simply uh, will go through and they'll get their um, status updated on what's called Superfund lookup, uh, which is quite important. probably sort of a bit invisible to most SMSF trustees, but if you are setting up your SMSF, the likelihood is that you're rolling over your APRA fund balance into your SMSF, and the APRA fund will check on Superfund Lookup if the fund is registered as complying. Okay, so it has gone through our secure front door process. If it hasn't, uh, then uh, they won't be able to roll over any money into it, and so that's the fundamental way we stop that money actually leaving the system
0: that's really interesting probably a point to make um, and i may be extrapolating here but for people who are listening going early release is not relevant for me right i'm not planning to take out my money before retirement i understand why i'm investing it you still have a vested interest in ensuring the integrity of the system because i think we can all agree if there's an enormous spike in early release and the system is no longer secure right it's seen as a way to just access your super early Mm -hmm. then you do run the risk that there will be greater regulatory Impositions on the sector, fewer people will be allowed to open or start funds, there will be wind-ups, or they might just introduce legislation to say, do you know what, self-managed super funds, we're going to do this, this and this, you know, there were talks about having minimum balances and all of these things, so...
1: Everyone should have an interest in the integrity of the system for exactly those reasons, because sadly the response is often to give more powers to the regulator, more heavy-handedness, and you know, we don't really want to go down that path um, if we can avoid it, because A, it imposes such a burden on the individuals, but also consumes an awful lot of resources um, Mm. from our side. So it's in everybody's interest that we try and um, manage it. I think that only genuine entrants enter the system. That's the number one thing we can do is at the front door, assess people and uh, make sure that they don't get through if they aren't genuine about wanting to manage their money for retirement purposes. So basically dodgy people ruin it for everybody.
0: And if you have any friends, this is probably the most important part, if you have any friends or know anyone who is, Perhaps being approached by a promoter, or it sounds like they don't understand how the system works. Or, or, or just being it told like a at a barbecue,
1: Gemma, yeah, sometimes you get those conversations. Oh, my friend told me that you can do this. Yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> just point them in the right direction <laughs> and make sure they get on top of it. Yeah. So, what do you actually do if we find someone as high yeah, as yeah, yeah, sure, you do? Sure, yeah, You were absolutely transparent about it. It's not, no problem. So, um, Of the sort of, I think it's about net 20,000 or so new entrants every year, we um, on average get about 10% flagged by the risk model and uh, of those we will um, interview the trustee. So uh, we will ask them for certain documentation to make sure that they actually have set up their fund properly and we will, um, if it's an ID fraud case, we will say were you actually intending to set up an SMSF and sometimes the answer is no. So that's an easy one. (laughs) But if um, we have concerns that they aren't actually entering the system for the right reasons, then we have a series of questions that we ask them to. We interview if there's two trustees individually, it's by telephone, uh, to ascertain if we think that they are actually doing it for the right reasons. Um, Of those, about 40% we stop. So we can see from the answers that they give us, um, sometimes even worse, we can hear someone coaching in the background their answers. Uh, we do stop them from entering the system because we believe they're a risk to their um, own retirement savings. And uh, look, that for this last financial year, there was about, that meant we protected in our, from about about $100 million from leaving the system.
0: That's amazing. So it's probably critical point to take away, having a self-managed super fund,
1: it's not a right. No. You've got
0: to earn it. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I, there was a great case um, just recently where the um, member actually did say, yes, you're having an SMSF is a privilege, not a mm,
0: right.
1: Yeah. And it comes with responsibilities, obviously. Um, so that's sort of, and, you know, other risk factors are, of course, if um, we do work very closely with ASIC, who. Um, are responsible for monitoring compliance of financial advisers in the system and, and sadly there are um, situations where financial advisers haven't um, behaved that well and they do, we do share information uh, about that. If it comes to our attention, we let them know uh, if they have a particular um, pattern of behaviour with a particular financial adviser with SMSFs, they will share that information with us. So That's another risk flag that we would take into account obviously at the start. I've mentioned it before, you guys have great data, so you can see this stuff coming. So you mentioned
0: non-lodgement. Talk me through what self-managed super funds have to lodge and what you do if you find that's not happening.
1: Yeah, so um, I do, because we are focused on our risk areas, I just want to take that opportunity to mention um, 86% mm-hmm. of um, SMSFs lodged on time in 2017. We just had the 2018 lodgement was actually at 90%. So that is a really good um, stat for lodging on time. It's actually uh, much higher than the general population. <laughs> <laughs> so just to sort of give some positive feedback um, to everybody that does make the effort to lodge on time. But it does still mean there's that population that don't. And this gets back to one of the most fundamental things as a person who wants to run their SMSF, you've got to lodge your return. Uh, And it's critical for us because it is the absolutely key flag that we have to show and demonstrate to us that the person, the SMSF trustee, is on top of their obligations. And they're able to meet their obligations and comply and stay in the system. If you can't even manage to lodge your return on time, I'm quite concerned. Um, The flip side of that is of course, um, before you lodge your return, uh, you will have had an annual audit done by your approved auditor. And that is who we rely on to report contraventions to us. So if someone isn't lodging, we're doubly concerned. They're probably not getting an audit, and that means we're not getting visibility of whether that fund is truly complying uh, or not with their obligations because we get nothing reported to us. So that's why we are very concerned about it. Um, the The other sort of flip side of that is what we have. We have. Um, We had a big campaign on our our non-lodging population last year, and we had about 87,000 that were behind in their obligations and got that down to about 66,000, so that was a lot better, but it's still a bit higher. We really would rather they were lodging. Some of those, um, that that sort of exercise enabled us to get a lot of insights into why people weren't lodging, and they ranged from um, what I would call ghosts in the system, so ones that have got to the end of life and just kind of had a couple hundred bucks left walked away rather than pay someone to help them wind up absolutely understand that Um, that's triggered us to think about how can we create a simplified wind-up process for people so they don't have to spend that money because we just get this population that sit there forever until we get get to dealing with them and then we have to ring them and find out and check their bank account and see if there's any transactions and go through this massive process so it'd be nice if we had an easy process for people to come to us to deal with The classic was I'm in pension phase, I don't need to pay any tax, I didn't think I needed to lodge a tax return anymore. Quite an an understandable, perhaps, mistake um, because when you're in an individual situation, you don't pay tax anymore, you don't have to lodge returns anymore, so why wouldn't that apply (laughs) to your self managed (laughs) super fund? And and there were also really sad situations where the often um, active member, so partners, husband and wife, perhaps it's the husband that's been the most active, perhaps it's the wife, one of them dies and the other just doesn't really know what to do. Mm. And so they just
0: don't, don't do it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, that, that exercise, um, we wrote out to 55,000 um, of those um, non-lodgers, so two or more years, outstanding, and said, you know, if you've got problems, come to us and we'll help you. Because what that project showed us is that there's a lot of reasons um, that people do end up not lodging. And usually it's because they've met some kind of hurdle and they just kind of don't know what to do next. So if we can help people deal with that, that's a big um, improvement in our visibility of what's going on in the system and also reducing that population where we have concerns. So that means we can target better the ones that haven't lodged for a a more nefarious purpose (laughs) of probably illegally early accessing their um, super or have um, a more serious breach where they might have you know, purchased um, their own shares or or tried to undertake some kind of aggressive tax planning. So that's kind of um, our focus in that area. That's really interesting.
0: We'll talk about the dodgy things people do in the breaches bit. Um, Always love knowing about those. They're always fun. Um, One group, so the top 100 funds out of 600,000, the top 100, tell us a bit about them.
1: Yeah, so this is a new program this year, uh, and we thought about it a lot um, because the superannuation industry as a whole, of course, is now quite mature. Like, I think back um, when I first started work, so this is gonna give away my age, and it was the first year the super guarantee was, introduced and I was very sad I got a tax um, a ta- a pay cut from that first <laughs> six months of my starting work because they didn't give it to me they just took it off my package but that's life right so I'm grateful now at my more advanced stage that I have um, a, a nice healthy super balance and keep contributing but it's really important to everyone that are foregoing and doing the right thing in the system that those top 100 funds I think um, can be assured that are also doing the right thing by the system and not taking advantage of um, the concessions that are offered to wealth accumulate um, illegally. So what we are doing is we have risk profiled every single one of those 100 funds. The entry point is 40 million.
0: Right. It's a bit bigger than the average. Bit
1: bigger than the average and uh, they control about 8 billion in assets. So it's big bickies, right? Mm. So what we've done is um, looked at them and has tried to work out how old they are, how they acquired their wealth, um, and a number of those we have um, referred to what we call our private wealth area for further investigation. Uh, Some of them had. Thousand percent growth rates in you know three or four years, uh, so these kind of things y- you want to understand how you achieve that. Yeah, I would quite like those returns myself. <laughs> yeah, so, so <sorry>, <laughs> is looking at my face as I go. What? Yes, yeah, so if only <laughs> you, listeners, could see your face. Uh, so that's that's the concern we have. Um, a number of them were just really old funds who um, were put in place before the caps on contributions came in. So they were lucky and had that opportunity to put a lot, significant amount of wealth in at a, um, you know earlier stage in their life cycle. So in the main, uh, generally okay, but there are a number that we have referred on to further investigations. So I can't sort of say too much because they obviously are um, in progress, but we certainly will report back um, to the community once we have finished those processes.
0: That's a it's a really fascinating piece of work, and I think plenty of people would be really interested to see the outcomes. For people who are listening prior to two thousand and seven, uh, you could contribute post-tax money it was called undeducted at the time to superannuation without limit mm. so the rules changed and kind of flipped on the head there used to be something called a reasonable benefits limit which was the amount you could hold inside the system that was taxed concessionally but it didn't apply to post-tax money it didn't apply to this undeducted. Mm. so you could have as yeah. you say ended up with these enormous funds so people could have put three million dollars in right. as an undeducted contribution and i remember you know, when I was working with financial planners making those sorts of recommendations. I remember someone who'd sold, it was actually quite sweet, They, they sold their caravan park on the beach you know, somewhere on the Sunshine Coast or equivalent thereof, to a property developer for like ten million dollars. Yeah. You know, and they'd, they'd owned it forever and bought it for nothing, and th- so they had all this money for the first time in their lives. And the most tax-effective and logical thing for them to do, because they were about to retire, mm. having run this was
1: to put it into their super. Put it into superannuation, so
0: they would have a ten million dollar fund, probably still, because there's no way they would have spent it all by now. Mm-hmm. Um, which was all tax-free at that time tax-free. because the legislation permitted it, but that may or may not be true for the other one.
1: Yeah, so, so the newer entrants are probably of more interest because mm. um, it is a lot more limited, as you rightly point out, in your ability to contribute and build up big balances now. So there were some interesting um, sort of situations where you know, assets get transferred in at a rather low market value and miraculously um, you know, uh, suddenly become worth millions and millions of dollars. So they, they're the kind of things that really do make you look twice so attract
0: attracts some attention indeed it's good for people to know that it's attracting attention
1: well i think it's um important for you know the ordinary person i include myself in that that uh, i have assurance that that at the top end of town they're getting the right level of scrutiny
0: so most trustees you've mentioned auditors a couple of times most trustees know that their fund gets audited although with a lot of stuff being done online right now you may never see it mm-hmm. right you know, it's just something that sort of happens in the background I know with our fund uh, I'm fairly sure that that gets done but it's organized by my administrator it's a third party all that kind of stuff um you've got an ongoing piece of work that is designed to ensure that the people who do those audits are qualified and doing them well can you first of all tell us what they're required to do and then how you make sure they're doing it correctly
1: yes yeah, so the The position of an SMSF auditor is uh, kind of like the um, FASEA process. They went through that quite a long time ago. Uh, So you must be registered with ASIC to perform an SMSF audit. And it's in recognition that it's quite a specialised job. Mm. And there are a lot of uh, different rules which uh, they have to check that the SMSF is complying with. Uh, as distinguishable from an ordinary auditor, an ordinary company auditor. Mm -hmm. So a company auditor is worried about the um, corporation's law. An SMSF auditor is worried about the Superannuation Industry Supervisory Act, right? So it's a completely different job. And in recognition of that, that was why the specialist designation was introduced. They have to sit the competency exam and uh, then we monitor them. So we monitor them for the basic things you would hope, like CPD, (laughs) and that they're keeping themselves up to date. But we also um, go out and we review, uh, are they conducting an adequate audit? And when I say an adequate audit, they are the requirements that are set by the Australian Auditing Standards Board. So are they conducting their audit in accordance with the requirements and guidance as set by our national body and their professional association? Uh, so, to do that, we don't go visit every single one of them, obviously, uh, but we do have a high risk auditor program and this year again, you'll understand the theme, we're looking at the top 100 auditors. So what we have seen in the industry is a concentration and so there are high volume auditors who do a significant amount of audits and that's because it is a real specialty. So. At that end, they can average from 500 to thousands of SMSF audits that they do. I mean, There's 600,000 SMSFs, Mm -hmm. so there are a lot to get through at tax time. But the top 100 uh, account for about one third of the SMSF industry. So by doing those top 100 and getting through them and checking that they are doing an adequate audit, we get assurance that one third of SMSFs are getting an adequate audit, which is great assurance for us. Um, and those assets that are held are about 170 billion. So it's still, um, you know, you might think it'd be one third, one third, but uh, obviously the assets of the whole of the SMSF sector is about 750 billion, so it's not quite a third, but we get coverage of one third of SMSFs, which is what we're really looking for. So there's two programs of work one, the top 100, our high risk orders, the others. We risk analyze the auditor population to look for key risks that we're focused on so just intuitively um, there's independence breaches so we can see um, if an auditor for example audited their own fund that wouldn't be (laughs) surprised but that does happen
0: so i remember being in the industry when it became required that you had to be independent Mm -hmm. so you couldn't uh for example if you were in an accounting practice sitting across the desk from someone Give them your funds to audit, and they give you theirs, right. and then you just swap files and give them back again. That's no longer permissible. So this is this yes. issue of independence is terribly important. It
1: is. Um, so reciprocal audit arrangements—they're called. We kind of do a deal and swap. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And this would be quite common. It was, like I can <laughs> imagine. And it's obviously because um, that's perceived as a threat to your ability to conduct independent audit because there's um, potentially an influence factor involved. Uh, but we do look at other sort of perhaps more um, uh, evidence-based um, triage of risk. And so we look at you know, high volume, low cost auditors because we're worried that maybe they're compromising their audit quality. And we also look at, um, we've spoken before, when you do an audit, the auditor reports a contravention to us. So we also look at the ratio of the volumes of audits and the amount of um, audit contraventions that are reported to us. So if that's out of whack, then it looks like they're not actually reporting or identifying, even worse, because <laughs> they're not um, perhaps up to date, yeah. um, the contraventions that exist. So we, we run that program. We continually run that program because that is our role to co-regulate with um, ASIC. But we've gotten about halfway through our top 100. Uh, and what do we do if people aren't doing an adequate audit? We refer them to ASIC for conditions and they might choose to strike them off the register if they believe the behaviour is serious enough. The two in the top 100 um, I suspect will be more education um, type conditions put on their licence or they might require uh, peer reviews of their audits for a year or two for some of their files to make sure that they're up to the standard. So that's the other kind of um, enforcement actions that ASIC can impose. So as a
0: trustee, I imagine most trustees are like me, right? You barely know you have an auditor. You know it's a thing that needs to get done, but you don't have any interaction with them and they just review your fund. And, and for many funds, I imagine a lot, certainly the data we see, yeah, almost everything they own is on the ASX. It's listed. It's pretty yeah. clean and neat or it's done by a financial planner with a platform. or it's, They're quite neat. and Vanilla, and the, you could
1: almost say. Vanilla, yeah. that's
0: a great word. You know, there, there's not a very high risk of... They're not terribly complex funds. There's pretty straightforward investment strategies. But you've mentioned regulatory contraventions. So these breaches, um, That was always the term that we used. You know, the things that people do that are wrong and what they are. And then the auditor's role to pick those up. So can you give me some examples of what constitutes a contravention, what you see, and then what you expect the auditor to, to do about it?
1: Of course, uh, so again, can I just preface that um, the level of audit contraventions get reported to is about 2% of the population. So again, vast majority definitely doing the right thing. So we are concentrated on the small number that um, are perhaps struggling to stay in the system or are engaging in behaviour that we do not, means we do not want them to stay in the system. So uh, of all those audit contraventions that are reported, so even of that 2%, Again, if I just may emphasise, about 50% of them are already rectified by the time they get reported to us. So the auditor does a super job in working with them and their tax agent to say, look, you've done this wrong, you need to, maybe it was um, an example of inadvertently taking the money out of the wrong bank account and they've put it back. So those um, kinds of behaviours, we're really, you know, really happy to see that self rectification. It demonstrates to us that they did make a genuine mistake or an error, and they've fixed it up. But that sort of leaves the other fifty percent. So we get about um, eighteen thousand reported to us. There are multiple contraventions generally for SMSFs. So that's only about eight thousand SMSFs.
0: Right, so they're doing lots of things wrong. Uh,
1: yeah, often, and, and this is the kind of issue with this segment of the population because they do seem to be struggling. Uh, and then, but if we go back to the 50% that self rectified, so you are down to about 4,000 that we're actually actively having to deal with. And again, by and large, they do work with us. So we get the contravention, we write to them, we say, Look, what if this is what's been reported to us, and they want to work with us to rectify. But there is that small, serious um, number that are not willing to engage or they um, just can't come to an agreement uh, or unfortunately sometimes they just can't actually rectify um, because the nature of the breach is so serious. Uh, So In those situations, there's a range of actions, so we can direct them to rectify. We can try and do an enforceable undertaking, which is better because it's a mutual agreement, so we get better outcomes if that's the case. But if it's so serious that it can't be rectified, then we have to disqualify the trustee. And that means, essentially, they have to wrap up their SMSF and if there's any money left, roll it back into an APRA fund. So in those, I call them proactive serious enforcement actions where we've actually had to get a bit tough with people, less than 500 in oh. a year. So it's pretty small numbers. That being said, what are the worst ones we see? To answer your question, mm. loans to members. Oh. Every year, um, about 20% of those contraventions are loans to members. So uh, that's just taking money out. Um, we, to classify it as a loan, we do um, need to see evidence of repayment or even um, some kind of loan documentation, even though they should never have done it in the first place. Mm. There, there needs to be a sense that it was a loan with some kind of intention to pay back. Otherwise it's illegal early release, which you've already touched on and gets um, treated very differently. So for a loan to member, there's a penalty. Um, for illegal early release, the money is assessed in your own hands, so a much more punitive um, outcome on the trustee. The other is in-house assets. So what are in-house assets? That's investing in your own assets. There's a small limit of 5%, just in case sort of people make a mistake of your whole SMSF, but generally this comes into play where um, people in- buy a house think they can live in it themselves or buy shares in their own private company, for example. Uh, those types of investments in related party assets are not um, allowed by the law and illegal. It comes with penalties. The other biggest contravention, which is really quite concerning, um, is separation of assets. Uh, and what this means is just keeping your personal assets separate from your SMSF assets. If you want to buy shares, make sure that the money comes out of your SMSF and they're set up in a share account that has the SMSF's name, not your own name. because. Um, that then gets reported by the auditor, what that contravention is, is a legal early release because you have taken money out into your personal benefit um, when you didn't meet a condition of release, which in the main is retirement and turning 60. So there are three, top three, and the others are a number of little, it's a little different ones, but they're the top three that we see consistently in that small 2% population.
0: It's lovely to hear that it's such a small number because it's really interesting when you go out and talk to individuals, you know, a lot of the reasons people want to set SSFs up uh, are this sort of misguided idea that you can use the money for your own personal benefit and property is always the one where, um, much less so than I used to hear it maybe a couple of years ago when the property market was going gangbusters and people were very concerned about sort of never being able to own a property in Sydney or Melbourne particularly. Um, You would hear these stories of people wanting to do things. You'd be like, you can't do any of that. can't do any of it. I'm so sorry. But it's just not a thing you can do with your super money. And you'd be explaining it to people and you have this horrible anxiety that it must be happening everywhere. But clearly people were asking the question and when they understood they couldn't do it. That's didn't right. do, didn't it. do it because if you're seeing only such a tiny fraction where it is actually occurring then clearly
1: Yeah, I think the concerning thing for me is when we look at that population They um, tend to have poorer compliance than the rest of the SMSF population So even after we've taken some form of compliance action, they still don't lodge their returns on time they still and um, they might not pay the penalty so Again, um, we, we've done a bit of analysis on this population, and what we really have to think about is you know, everybody deserves a chance, so we always want people to try and get back on track and we'll work with them. But if they're repeat offenders, I think you really seriously have to ask the question if they're a fit and proper trustee and able to have that privilege and fulfil the responsibilities that are required of an SMSF trustee, and that's when we get to the you know nastiest phase of potentially having to consider disqualifying them as a trustee. Well, in
0: addition to being disqualified, uh, the penalties, you're not mucking around with those, are they? Because I feel like the penalty unit's over $10,000 each, isn't it? Is it that
1: high? Oh, there... And you can impose several of them? there's. Penalty units um, are different at different years, so it depends right, on okay. when the contravention occurred. Yeah, right, occurred. it depends on when they did it, mm, yeah. But um, it, it can mount up, and, and there's different levels of penalties for different levels mm. of seriousness. So some, um, some are record keeping penalties, so they have lower penalties than, you know, the types of loans to members situations that we've just looked at. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, an area for us that we are trying to work out how to shift behaviour. Because there's no point imposing penalties if they don't actually result in a change in behaviour. Mm. So what we are um, trying to look at with this population is actually in the past, if you made a voluntary disclosure, you generally got full remission, right? So we're saying, well, that's not really working because they're just coming back. (laughs) Again. <laughs> same problem next year yeah mm. so so we're trying to do um look at the first time offenders and say well you need to have a penalty for your behavior the breach of the law um something reasonable in proportionate to the action that you have taken or done or breach uh, and and then we get to see if they can get themselves back get themselves straight so then if they can pay it, they are a good citizen thereafter, looks like they've lodged their returns, got their stuff up to date, um, got over the hurdle that whatever it was that, that made them um, get fall off the wagon, uh, that's what the ideal situation would be. But we're feeling like we have to impose a penalty so there is a consequence, so that people understand that there is a law and they've signed up for all these obligations to meet them and they have a responsibility to actually meet them. And you don't just um, get a bit of a slap over the wrist if you don't. So this is people's retirement savings, it's actually really important stuff. The second time they come round, yes you're right Gemma, it's probably going to be a lot more serious and look, the action we'd be looking to take is to discuss in the whether seriously they are able to stay in the system. And that's really difficult because people do want to control their own money. And uh, there's been two recent cases which um, I've been very um, helpful for us in us administering the law in this space. Um, Brooks and Fitzmorris, just recently, if anyone's really excited wants to go and look them up. Um, but the. The judgments were quite clear that, you know, good intentions are no substitute for good governance. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If I can put it that way. Mm. So um, they were disqualification decisions that we'd made that the member had appealed, and in both cases, um, our decision was upheld. So I think that's um, really helpful for the sector to show the seriousness of the obligation you take on and the consequences if you don't take that seriously. And don't make the effort to understand what um, you need to do so in one of the cases it was the classic example of my accountant said I could do it um, but they didn't get advice and they didn't get it in writing and um, you know the, the member was quite clear that you know blaming your advisor is not um, an acceptable excuse for not meeting your obligations under the law you've got an obligation to actually make sure that you've got proper advice
0: Mm. There's a case, and I can't remember the name of it, so it's not going to be helpful to anyone who is who's into nerdy looking stuff up. Uh, that I recall from a couple of years ago, where it was a loan to member situation, where they've been making withdrawals effectively from the fund, using it to fund their business and so on. The husband was quite clearly the instigator of the mm-hmm. behaviour. The wife was either unaware or somewhat indifferent to it but penalties were imposed on both of them and the penalty imposed on her was lower but I feel like it was about $30,000 it wasn't nothing like it was a very significant fine by anybody's standard and it was also upheld the decision I'm pretty sure and the the decision was discussed to say look your name's on everything you are obligated to know what you're doing I am very sorry that this is being imposed on you. It's a horrible mm, outcome, mm. but you are responsible, and you have to take that responsibility seriously. Which I, we we shared that case pretty widely, actually. Yeah. it's really important for people to understand.
1: That's great. If you remember, um, please remind me. Uh, <laughs> the 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 outcome of that is um, we're about to release a. Um, a practice um, statement, guidance statement that um, addresses the imposition of penalties and what we do. And that's actually one of the situations we address is where you have the passive member mm. and we've made it quite clear that, yes, you will get a greater level of remission um, and will be more generous than the primary party who's actually conducted the actions, but you did sign up At the start to take on the responsibility that trustee declaration that you sign at the start i always say to them, please read it please Mm -hmm. understand there are a lot of obligations that you have to comply with and um in in one of the two cases i've just mentioned the member pointed out that on your tax return you actually um answer questions that say have you loaned any money to members for example and they ticked no and they signed it so again it's sort of like you know actually read what you're signing because Legally, that's what you have warranted that you have um, complied with. So the excuse of I don't, didn't know yeah. is not going to wash, because unlike being in the a general taxpayer where we uh, don't really get an option as to whether we participate in the tax system or not, you pay and that's kind of it. Yeah. SMSFs, you voluntarily take on that obligation. And so there has to be an understanding that you don't just get the privilege there's a responsibility side as well. And the consequences in the end, always rest with the trustee. You can't blame your accountant, you can't blame your financial advisor. You're fundamentally responsible.
0: You can go and sue them afterwards if you really want to, but it's very expensive. Yes, um, and, yes. if they failed to professional... if you do, want to, if to you do want to sue them, you want yes. to be damn sure they put everything in writing. That's right. <laughs> and
1: uh, look, there have been a couple of cases in the auditor space where they recently, where they did um, get sued and, and they were held responsible because they had failed to conduct an adequate audit. But that's, um, that's a pretty last desperate stance, and it's often because the financial advisor's gone bankrupt, of course. That the um, individual ends up um, in a rock and a hard place, but um, they were kind of um, they, they were kind of fortunate that the auditor hadn't um, actually verified the value of the assets um, appropriately, so they had some recourse. But you know, you're not going to be necessarily able to count on that. So far, better that you make sure that you've got market valuations yourself and you actually know what the value of your SMSF is.
0: Donna. All of this is, it's great to understand what you guys are looking for. I think what's most valuable is going, do you know what, it's a tiny proportion of the population who are Mm -hmm. not doing the right thing. Uh, In some cases, it's intentional. In some cases, it's uh, very possible people just don't understand their obligations but are not great at working them out subsequent to being told off, uh, which is quite (laughs) interesting. I would have thought you'd get on top of it. But anyway, you guys do a fabulous job of producing high quality, really easy to understand information for trustees. And I say this as a person who used to use those resources all the time when I was talking to clients and so on, saying, look, this is the stuff you should read, this is where you should go and get your, get your information from, uh, horse's mouth, so yep. to speak. You know, yep. Go to the source, this is what you need, short of reading legislation, which is pretty tedious and not gonna help you much. <laughs> what would you suggest people do in, in terms of wanting to keep up to date with what you're doing?
1: Yeah, I think um, the the simplest thing that people can do is to uh, subscribe to our SMSF news service, which you can find on our uh, SMSF dedicated landing page on the ATO. So that's www.ato.gov.au and then the forward slash SMSF, SMSFs. So that um, landing site has a lot of information for um, Self-Managed Superfund trustees. There are checklists for what you should think about when you're setting up your SMSF. There are videos about what you need to think about at each stage of your life cycle. Um, We also have six um, videos on thinking about your investments and what you need to think about um, in that space. So there's a lot of really good, um, and thank you for saying so, I hope very accessible information and user-friendly information for individuals wanting to understand what those responsibilities are and what they should be concerned about. The news service is a good way of just keeping up to date with what's going on and what we will broadcast, what we're concerned about. Uh, Often that might be a good way of thinking about, well, what might the ATO be looking at next year? Because we will always be very transparent and say, we're seeing this kind of behaviour, we're worried about it. Uh, A classic example at the moment would be, we wrote an article earlier in the year around investing in cryptocurrency. And we were particularly concerned about that because we had seen cases of two cases of individuals losing pretty much, well, very significant amounts of their super. In one case, half their fund, Um, and the other was uh, one of those scam platforms where they'd lost everything. So, uh, going forward, uh, we changed the tax return this year. We have a cryptocurrency label. We're actually going to see from uh, our data how big an issue this is. And we'll probably be writing to those individual trustees and saying, we're concerned. So you you can pretty much um, keep your finger on the pulse by um, reading those articles, they're all written, um, they're all Very user-friendly. Our marketing comms um, cross out a lot of the words I use and put in (laughs) words that people would understand and and I'm very grateful for that. Um, So they're they're definitely pitched at ensuring people actually understand the messaging and not being techie. Mm. Um, There's a lot of technical stuff there as well, but even the technical stuff is tried to be written in the most plain English way so you don't have to be a tax practitioner to understand it. An ordinary person should be able to read it and understand what the message is. So I do encourage people if they have questions to go to that site and, and do a bit of a search and they can probably find out at least the basics of what they need to know.
0: The other thing is calling you, because I used to do that too if I couldn't find something, you'd get confused or just sort of want to deal with a very specific complex issue. You know, I've got mm. a client who's doing something very bizarre and how do I deal with it? One example of a, uh, a taxpayer alert you put out years ago, but it had a really big impact, certainly where I was working at the time, was about wash sales. Oh, yes. So was, this is an alert the ATO put out that said, we are seeing lots of people sell assets, usually shares, on the 29th of June and then buy them back on the 1st of July, clearly for tax purposes. Don't do that unless you've got a really good (laughs) reason. reason. And it was just so effective because everyone went, oh didn't think that was a problem, alright I'll well, stop doing that then mm. and it was just such a simple effective way of getting people to understand Yeah, it's called a wash sale,
1: don't do it. Yeah it's good that you've said that. Um, we recently did quite a bit of work with ASEC in relation to a promoter, and we did a similar kind of thing um, so we both had information and then they published in the area in the local um, media uh, you know we've seen Basically, people set up outside supermarkets, sell properties. Really, you should be very careful of doing that and, um, you know, just stopped it dead. So those kind of alerts, I think, are quite powerful and just saying there is a risk here and you should be alert to it. And I hope people trust us and ASIC as the regulator that we wouldn't say that lightly. Mm. Donna
0: Fleming for the ATO. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Gemma. It's been a pleasure to join you.
0: I, uh, I mentioned this last time, but the ATO can seem very very intimidating for people, a little bit scary. I think it's absolutely awesome for people to understand that regulating a sector means you have an exceptional understanding of what's going on and you've got an acute focus on the areas that matter rather than everyone needing to be terrified for, frankly, not much reason. Mm. So, I hope so. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we hope this episode has been helpful for you on your journey to creating wealth. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, if you want to know more about what the ATO is up to, we do love to hear from you. So please just email us at at nav.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au.
1: Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.